0: All right, so around this time last year, the Pew Research poll did a study that revealed that more and more Americans today either do not want to have any kids or they do not want to add to the number of kids they already do have. Consider this quote from the New York Post that reported on this study. It says this, quote, nearly half, some 44% of respondents ages 18 to 49, in the U.S. said it is, quote, not too likely or not at all likely that they will have kids one day. An increase of 7% from 2018, according to a Pew Research Center survey. Some 56% of respondents without kids indicated that they, quote, just don't want to have children as the primary factor. Some 74% of adults under 50 who already have children, meanwhile, said they're unlikely to have more kids up from 71%. In 2018, the poll found, end quote, We are living in a time and age where more people today do not want to start a family or expand the family that they currently have. And if you took all the various reasons as to why they feel this way, it boils down to one main issue, difficulty. It is hard. It is hard to start, to support, and to secure a family from the various trials and tribulations that society throws against us. And for those of us in here who are in the trenches, I know we can all say an amen to that. Amen? Amen. It's true. It is so hard to start support and to secure family in this day and age, especially in the city that we do. And no doubt one of the most difficult reasons for this difficulty is because many parents today will admit that they simply don't know how to pull it off. So many parents are so dire in their situations that they're convinced that there really is no clear-cut way of ensuring that you can have a safe, stable, and successful family to where they would say that if you happen to have a family that is happy and healthy, you just won the lottery. It's just the luck of the draw. There's no way that you can do all of your attempts, no way that you can make any effort truly productive in the direction of having a safe, stable, successful family life. But what if I told you that such cynicism is absolute rubbish? What if I told you that there are indeed steps that if you do take, increases the chances of you having a happy, healthy, and abundant family life? Yeah, now make sure you didn't mishear what I just said. I didn't say that there are steps that if you take will ensure that you'll have an absolute, happy, healthy, successful family. But I said increase your chances of such a thing. Because after all, What effort ever has a 100% success rate? Nothing. And yet, when has that ever stopped us from doing something worth doing? None of us. And that's the same mindset that I believe we need to have when it comes to our endeavors of creating a family life that is happy and healthy, safe, and successful. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear. One of the ways that Christians bless the world is by raising and rearing families where the members of those families are tremendous blessing to society, which is probably why the Bible says that how we raise and how we rear our families is one of the five crucial core ministries that God calls every Christian to be a minister of. We're continuing our sermon series entitled METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. Sorry, Yankee fans. The name is too long to have an acrostic for, right? But it refers to the five crucial core ministries that every Christian is called to be a minister of, and they are as follows. Number one, our personal ministry to God, which we referred to last time I was up here. Today, our ministry to our family. Then we're going to talk about our ministry to the church, our ministry to the world through our work. That's number four. And finally, our ministry to the broken, forgotten, and forsaken of society, okay? And so, to look at the second of the five, we're going to focus on Psalm 128, which tells us the four steps that, if you take, increases the chances of having a happy and productive, successful family life. Now, before I continue, let me address those of you in this room who are either not married and don't have kids. If you're tempted right now to think, man, PJ's about to tell a sermon that has no relevance to me, let me tell you right now, you're absolutely wrong. Why? Because even though you may not have an actual biological family of your own, you're part of a spiritual family called the church, right? And because that is so, you have friends who are your brothers and sisters in Christ who are married and who have kids. And because you as a Christian have a duty to encourage and to hold accountable your brothers and sisters in Christ who are mommies and daddies, you too need to be equipped and informed of the things that the Bible calls your friends to live out. So you need this so that you can live out your call as a disciple, so that you can call out your friends when they need to be called out, and hold them accountable as the spiritual godparents of their children, which you are, remember, okay? So this sermon applies to everyone in this room, okay? So with that in mind, here are the four steps that Psalm 128 tells us that we need to take for a happy, healthy home, at least increases the chances of such. Number one, step one, fear God. Number two, work to provide. Number three, prioritize your marriage. And number four, provide a mission. The four steps needed that 128 tells us that we are to do if we want to have a good chance of having a happy, healthy family life is fear God, work to provide, prioritize the marriage, and provide a mission. Let's begin with the... First step, fear God. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Here the psalmist identifies the very first step you need to take if you want to have a healthy and healthy family life. You must fear God. Fear God. Now, before I go any further, let me say right off the bat that if there's any concept that many Christians completely misunderstand, it's this concept of fearing God. Why? Because most often, people tend to impose onto God the negative effects that their sinful fears have on them, and as a result, they misapply what it means to fear God. Let me give you a couple examples. There are some of you in this room who have a constant fear of failure. Yeah, you're always worried about, you're always anxious about failing, imposter syndrome, and so forth, which means when you hear the pastor telling you, you need to fear God, you're going to conclude, oh, that means I need to be afraid of failing God, and that defines your relationship with Him. Others of you in here fear rejection all the time, and when you read the Bible telling you, you need to fear the Lord, right, you conclude, oh, I need to be afraid of being rejected by God, and that defines your relationship with Him. Hear me when I say this. This is not how we are to fear God. So many misguided Christians misunderstand and misinterpret what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is categorically different from any other fear that we experience in this world because all the fears we experience in this world are sinful and not of God. It's true, right? These two kinds of fears are categorically different. How so? Because the effect the fear of God has on you is the complete opposite of any other sinful fear we struggle with. Consider what it says in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. It says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me, and then listen, so that they will never turn away from me. Here God is referring to the spiritual transformation he does in a person when he converts them to saving faith. And notice he references that they fear God. And what is the behavior exhibited by a person who fears the Lord? They go towards him, right? They never turn away. They go in his direction. Now that is so odd, right? Why? Because think about the other fears that we struggle with. When we are afraid of something or someone, do we turn in the direction of the fear of our object? No, we go in the opposite way. We run away as far away as possible to the things that we fear. Why? Because we want to avoid the negative consequences or the negative impact they'll have on us. Guilt, punishment, shame, humiliation, judgment. But here we see that the person who fears God goes in the direction of God and runs towards him. Why? Because they want to experience the unique privileges and blessings that only God gives to us. Blessings like true unconditional love, complete forgiveness, absolute transformation to become better. In other words, when a person fears the Lord, they go towards the object of their fear. They go towards God because they want to experience the unconditional, forgiving, life-transforming love of God. That's what it means to fear Him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. is out this is so embarrassing guys i'm so sorry just give me one second hope i don't forget my place in the sermon hello hello thank you pastor charles We need new batteries for Pastor Charles's mic. (laughs) What was I? Okay. I would say, oh, yeah, the fear of God and the fear that we struggle with in life have nothing in common except for one thing, and that is obsession. Obsession. You know how we tend to obsess and ruminate over the things that we're terrified of to where we're always thinking about it. We never let the eyes of our heart off of it right? That is the one thing that is in common that the fear of God has to all other fears. We're constantly thinking about, ruminating, obsessing over God, but in a positive way rather than in a negative way. So let me ask you, how do you think a person who fears the Lord, how that is going to impact and influence the kind of family that they try to create in their home? The answer, they're going to strive to create a spiritual family, a spiritual family. You know, A lot of different families exist because so many parents have different goals in mind when it comes to the kind of families that they want to create. Some parents, they want to create prestigious families, yeah, where mom and dad work prestigious jobs, where children go to prestigious schools, get into prestigious universities, get prestigious awards and accolades and so forth because they're so ambitious of making sure that their family is known to be set apart, to be successful, to be prestigious because it's all about prestige, for other parents, they are fixated on creating wealthy families where they want to acquire and hold on to as much money as possible so they can pass on to their kids who then they in turn can add to the family pot, creating this generational wealth so that their family has a lot of comfort, a lot of conveniences, a lot of trinkets and technology so that they can live the abundance of the American life. That's all that they're about. They want to be wealthy. Other parents care about being a powerful family. Right? where they want to expose themselves and their children to networks, to institutions, to coalitions that gives them an inside place within society, whether it be in entertainment, whether it be in government, whether it be in some sort of uh, philosophical or ideological movement so that they can truly be powerful and leverage their family name. But the person who fears the Lord, according to Scripture, is someone who is committed to raising a spiritual family. A spiritual family. Now, what in the world does it mean to raise a spiritual family. Well, I like how one pastor by the name of Sam Lang, how he describes it. He says this, quote, a spiritual family is a family where God is honored and where his presence is sought And experienced in daily life. It is a home where prayer is an ongoing reality and where the Bible is faithfully read and obeyed. It is a family who honors God with a total commitment of life and heart. A family that is dedicated to following Christ. It is a home that loves God's church and is fully involved in its fellowship and ministry. It is a place where the children, as they mature, are coming to love and learn the Bible and where the parents are working with each child to disciple them to Christ. End quote. A spiritual family is one that is focused and fixated on learning about God, living for God, because they love God more than anything and anyone than of this earth. And the only way a family could even begin to be going in this direction is if the members of the family, especially mom and dad, have the fear of God. That is the very first step, Christian, that you must take if you want to have the chance of having the true, happy, and abundant family life that God has called your family to live. But, of course, that's not the only step because there are three more. So let's consider the second of the next, which says, work to provide. Read again verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with with you. Here the psalmist identifies the second step that we are to take if we want to have a good chance of having a happy and healthy home and that is we must work to provide. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because in a couple weeks, I'm going to dedicate an entire sermon on the ministry of work. But I do want to focus on what our children need from us parents in terms of what we give them through our work. And there are basically two things. Number one, our children need from us through our work their physical and material needs being met. And number two, our children need from our work parents a work ethic to imitate. The two things that our children need from our work life is that their material needs are being met and a work ethic to imitate. Let's consider the first, which is our material needs. Scripture clearly teaches that parents, and especially dads, are to ensure that the needs of their family are being abundantly and adequately met. Consider what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that parents and especially fathers, if you do not adequately provide for the material needs of your family, then God will look upon you as someone as wicked, as an idolater, or as an atheist who has denied the faith. Now you hear that and you're like, really? Doesn't that seem a little bit too much? Doesn't that seem a little overboard? Doesn't that seem a little ridiculous? Why would Paul say something so egregious and so serious sounding over something that seems so superficial and mundane like our work life? The answer, because Paul and really the whole Bible would say that work is not a superficial, mundane, unspiritual thing. No, just the opposite. Our work has profound ramification to the spiritual well-being of our kids. Let me explain. You know, when our young kids, there they are right now. When our young kids are living with us, right, they have a hard time of relating to God because they're not capable of seeing God because he's an abstraction. Children, when they're young, cannot think abstractly. And so it's hard for them to think about what it means to have a personal relationship with an invisible God. But you know what is easy for our kids? To have a relationship with their earthly fathers. Yeah. And let me ask you, let's say a child sees his father or mother not being faithful in providing adequately for the needs of the home. And then they learn in Sunday school that dad is an earthly representation of their heavenly father what do they going to conclude about the faithfulness of God's protection and provision for them? Aren't they going to likely think that God is either not capable of meeting my needs or could care less of meeting my needs? Fathers, you need to hear this, okay? Your faithfulness in adequately providing for the needs of your family has profound ramification that could dictate and determine the spiritual well-being of your children in terms of how they will see the faithfulness of their heavenly Father. You will be the beginning model of whether or not they know that their God is faithfully true in meeting their needs as he promises in his word. Hold on to that thought as I consider the second thing our parents, excuse me, our children need from our work life. And that is a work ethic to imitate. Parents, I wonder if you are guilty of this. That as you are going on those diatribes that you typically do about how much you hate your job, how you wish you didn't have to work, if your children are listening in an earshot distance, right? I know I have been guilty of this. Not to say that I don't love you guys and I don't love this job, right? But let's be honest. Work can be hard, and sometimes we complain and grumble too much to the point where our children are hearing it, and what are they going to think? They're going to think that work is what? They're probably going to think that work is evil, yeah, It's a necessary evil. Yeah, I got to do it. Daddy has to work in order to pay the bills, in order for us to live in this nice house, in order for us to go on those nice vacations, in order for you to have those nice meals out in the city. But I hate it, right? Oh, I wish I didn't have to work. Can you imagine what your children are going to learn in terms of the intrinsic value of work? They're probably not going to see it worth being much at all. But consider how CEO Russ Crossan says from the Ron Blue Financial Institute. He says this, quote, A positive work ethic is an essential component to develop in your posterity, your children, for at least two reasons. First, work embellishes his responsibility, discipline, endurance, sacrifice, and accountability. Although these qualities may be taught without working, they cannot be taught as effectively. Second, since work, employment, or effort that is productive and has a positive impact on society is God's idea, children will only experience fulfillment as they learn to work. In other words, work is the alternative to slothfulness. The former will enhance a good self-worth and fulfillment. The latter will destroy them, end quote. Parents you need to understand that your children need to learn that work is not intrinsically evil but inherently good because it produces good characteristics in those who do it faithfully and ethically which means which means stop bemoaning and complaining about your job in front of your kids because you may be teaching something that is contrary to The Word of God. Teach them that work is something that can be used for the glory of God and something we should be grateful to God that we're capable of doing in the first place. And furthermore, parents, I know we have a desire of wanting to provide and give all that we can to our kids to the point where they don't have to work for it, but don't do that too much. Sometimes it is good and necessary for your children to work for the things that they want to do, the things they want to have, the things they want to experience. Why? Because it shapes in them the kinds of characteristics that are good for society. Characteristics like self-sacrifice and self-control rather than selfishness and entitlement. Right? We need to impart to our next generation of how God created us to work and how when we work in a way that is honoring to the Lord it does something in us that brings transformation that is good for society. Okay? So The thing that we need to do, the second step we must take, if we want to have a healthy and happy family life, we must work to provide. Okay? Let's consider the third step, prioritize the marriage. Read again verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Notice how even though the wife and child are put in the same sentence, conspicuously, wife is referenced way before children. And there are two reasons for this. The first reason being obvious. Marriage always comes before the kids, not after the kids. Again, marriage always comes before the kids, not after the kids. We're living in a time and age where more children in our country are born out of wedlock than they are in marriage. That means over 50% of the children that are born in our country are born where mommy and daddy are not even married to each other. In fact, sometimes they get worse. The reality is that more children in our society... It's okay, sweetie. More children in our society, right, have siblings that have different fathers than the ones that they have. This sort of backwards dysfunctional setup has been shown to have detrimental dysfunctional effects on the development of children. It's true. Consider this quote from the Huffington Post that cites a study from Princeton University That shows the effects when parents are not married to each other on children quote results of the study conclude that compared with traditional families parents of fragile families are more likely to have uh, become parents in their teens more likely to have children with other partners more likely to be poor suffer from depression struggle with substance abuse and to have been incarcerated end quote. when getting married is not prioritized over having kids It creates a very dysfunctional environment for the well-being of the development of kids. Now, I know for many of us in this room, this is not an issue for us because for most of us in this room, you guys got married before you had kids. I would know. I think I married a majority of you guys in this room. But that doesn't mean that this verse does not apply to you because there's something else that this verse says that we need to heed. And this does apply, and that is you must continue to prioritize the marriage Even after the kids come. In other words, you must make sure that not only do you prioritize getting married before I have kids, you must continue to prioritize the relationship of the marriage, even though the children are crying out for your first response attention. Look at the imagery here. Okay, you have the wife pictured as this vine and the children as the fruit of the vine, the olive shoots. This is not a poetic attempt to just garnish their words with superficial poetic imagery. No, there's a clear point to be made that the psalmist is trying to make. And it's simply this. If you want to have healthy and vibrant children, you must make sure you're taking care of the source of life for these children, namely mom and dad. Married folks and those of you who want to be married, hear me when I say this. You must prioritize your relationship with your spouse over and above your relationship with your kids. Your role as husband and wife must take precedence over your role as mommy and daddy. It is true. It is so true. And I know many of you believe that this is true. Many of you guys agree with me. But the problem is, for many of us, we don't know how to do it. See, for many of our struggles in the Christian faith, the question is we don't know what the right answer is. We just don't know how to apply the right answer. How do we prioritize our relationships in such a way that we don't jeopardize it in the name of loving and caring for the kids? Well, there are so many um, things that I could tell of you, but I'll, let me just identify four things that maybe I can offer as a suggestion. Okay? Number one, serve your spouse. Serve your spouse. And I don't mean be their slave or be their personal assistant. What I mean is serve them by speaking their love language. Relational experts say that there are basically five love languages that exist, five behaviors that if you exhibit makes your partner feel loved. Here they are behind me. Number one, receiving words of affirmation. Babe, you're so beautiful. Hubs, you are so hot. You're such a great dad. You're such a wonderful wife. You're such an outstanding mother. For some spouses, when you constantly encourage them with words of affirmation and affection, they feel like they have just been swept off their feet because words are powerful. By the reaction of some of the women in here, I can know who the words of affirmation are, right? Speak words of life, words of encouragement. Number two, another language, spending quality time. Yeah, Go out on that dinner day. Check out the latest movie. Go for the walk in the park. Spend time with your spouse without the kids and try not to talk about them, right? I mean, yeah, you can every now and then, like, Oh, he had his first step or he had his first, you know, word, mommy, you know. But spend quality time that focuses on the relationship itself. Number three, receiving gifts. Some people feel incredibly loved when they are gifted with many things. It doesn't necessarily have to be an expensive gifts but it could be something that has real sentimental value, right? Something that has meaning behind it, right? Number four, acts of service. It could be fixing the house, taking out the garbage, doing the dishes, you know, mowing the lawn. Something that seems so mundane can really go a long way of having your partner feel like you really care about them and that you're really for them. And number five, physical touch. Fellas, I don't really need to encourage you in this department, right? But maybe I can encourage the wives Ladies, sometimes your husband needs some sort of physical uh, symbol of your commitment and devotion to them. And that's totally fine because that's the way God made us. So every now and then, a physical touch could really go a long way of making your man feel wanted and accepted and affirmed as your husband's. Okay, But here's the point. Serve your spouse by speaking frequently and fluently the love language that God wired them to have, at least in that season, of life. Another suggestion. Number two, listen to your spouse. Studies have shown that when a spouse feels like that they're not being heard by their partner, it's a psychological equivalent of their partner abandoning them and leaving the family. It's true. But the more a spouse hears their partner, that partner is going to feel recognized. That partner is going to receive the information from their spouse. I'm by your side. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. We're in this together. So if you constantly listen to the concerns, to the complaints, even the mundane happenstance of everyday life, that goes a long way of really prioritizing the relationship that exists in marriage. Third suggestion, work with your spouse in parenting the kids. This really is a recurring problem for most young parents, where one or both spouses feel that the other is not doing their fair share of raising and rearing the kids. This is such an easy one to solve. All you need to do is write out the various needs and responsibilities of the home and then have people pick. You know, I'll do this, I'll do that, you do this, you do that, and then periodically check in. Make sure that this still feels equitable because it's always evolving. All you need to do is come to a point of agreement where people can take on responsibilities and needs that the families have. Number four, allow your spouse to be more than the parent. No doubt the greatest role a human being could take on, aside from being a child of God, is being a mom and dad. But that's not the only role that they have, right? There are other roles that your spouse has, child of their parents, right? A son, a daughter, a friend to that person, a professional working in the city, You need to recognize that your spouse is more than the parent of your child, and you need to empower and encourage them to live out the other roles that God has given them. So that means you encourage your wife to hang out with her girlfriends for a weekend so that she can recharge and reconnect with her sisters. That means you let the brother go out with his friends so he can go bowling and spend time and reconnect With his brothers. It also means that when the children are grown and they don't need that much focus and attention, mom can maybe go back to school and continue on her education that she had to stop. Or maybe dad can finally take that promotion that he's been deferring for years just so that he can always be available. The clear point here is obvious. You must, as a spouse, support and encourage your other partner to live out the other roles that God has given them. Okay? Prioritizing the marriage is a third step we take of having a happy and healthy home life. And this leads me now to the final step that we must take, provide a mission. Read again, verse 5, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. So after talking about marriage, the psalmist zooms out and focuses on the city of Jerusalem. And you hear that and you wonder, is he changing the subject abruptly? What does a successful family life have anything to do with the peace and prosperity of the city? It has everything to do with it. Consider what Pastor Tony Evans says on this Topic, families touch every area of society. Their strengths and weaknesses, to a large degree, determine the strengths and weaknesses of churches and communities. If children are rebellious in the home, the same will apply in schools and on the streets. If America is going to rebuild its communities morally, socially, and spiritually, it will have to begin by rebuilding the foundations of families, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying the more healthy a family is, the more healthy the city becomes. This is why the psalmist makes the connection between the well-being of families and the peace and prosperity of the city. Now, when you understand this, then you realize what the mission God has given every Christian family to live out. You know what that is? Not to isolate and insulate themselves from the needs of the city, but to really go out and be a blessing to the city. God has given every Christian family the mission of raising children who are godly citizens, caring neighbors, and active participants to the civil and communal needs of society. That is the mission God has given to every Christian family, to every Christian family in this room, okay, which means you cannot Look at your family as your own little shelter from the world as a way of you can hiding out from the calling God has given the church to be a blessing to the world. No, your family should be on the front lines so that you can create people who are a blessing. This is why we spend so much of our time, money, and resources on our family ministries. Not because we don't love you singles in here, but because we can raise children who are like you singles in here who are a blessing to the people around you, you see? Now, when you understand this, then we come to the question at hand. And that is, how can families like ours live out such a daunting mission? Because let's be honest, for many of us, our families, we gravitate towards comfort. We gravitate towards convenience, not discomfort, not inconvenience, that is usually required to experience to live out a mission like this. How do families like ours live out the God-given mission of being a blessing to the world? The answer is simply this. It starts with believing the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says that the perfect family of three, the Holy Trinity, made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had every right, had every justification to keep that perfect family love within themselves. To where they had no care, no concern for anything or anyone else except within their family. But the Bible says God didn't do that. Instead, out of sheer grace, he created the world. Why? So he can create mankind to experience and enjoy this perfect family love. That's what the gospel teaches us. But here's the thing. The gospel also says that because of our sins, because of our wickedness, because of our wretchedness, because of our selfishness, God had every right to revoke this perfect family love so that we would never experience it again. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God does the opposite. He ensures a way for this love to be permanently available to anyone who wants it. How? By the eternal Son of God coming into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, so he can suffer the full punishment, the full penalty for your sins and my sins, so that anyone who turns away from their sins and make Christ their king, this love is now permanently theirs to enjoy and to experience. And, oh, when you experience this love of God, what does it do? It causes you to want God more than anything where you run his direction. In other words, you start to fear him. And not only do you start fearing God, you start imitating God's love for you by doing what? Of making sure you provide the needs of your family just like God provided the spiritual needs of his broken family by providing salvation. Yeah. When you understand what the Heavenly Father provided for you, that will cause you to imitate the same manner for your earthly families by adequately and sufficiently providing for the needs of your earthly family. And not only that, it will cause you to prioritize your marriage because Christ prioritized his marriage relationship to the bride called the church, where he was willing to do all that he could, all that was required to be faithful to that relationship. Something else to imitate, right? Don't you see? It's when you understand and live out the gospel truth that you're able to live out the steps required to have a happy, healthy, successful family life. It all comes back to the gospel. So let me ask you, folks, for those of you who are in here as singles or family, do you want to have the kind of family that is abundantly healthy and vibrant, full of success and joy? It comes back to believing the gospel. Do you want to be the kind of person that is contributing to the well-being of the city, where you are making an impact, causing the world to be better off than it was before you existed, you need to believe the gospel. The gospel is the only force that allows the families to do its God-given mission of raising up men and women like yourselves to live out the call of being a blessing to the world. The question is, do you believe this gospel? If you do, then it's time now to take the steps needed so that your families now or later become the source of blessing that God has called it to be. My hope and prayer is that as a church family, that that would be the centerpiece of how we live our lives individually as singles and collectively as families. This is where it begins, and this is where it must always stand on, the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this sermon, which indeed had a lot of information, a lot of content, will nevertheless stay with us, to the point where it causes us to live it out. Father, you know the struggles that we have as parents. You know the struggles our children have uh, in their households. You know the struggles that singles have as they try to figure out their place in a setting like ours. But Lord, in all of it, it all comes back to us believing the gospel and having the gospel have its impact and influence upon us. Father, we thank you for every person in this room And we hope and pray that we as a church family can really encourage and empower our families here and the future families that will be formed so that each family would live out the mission you've given to us of being a blessing to the world. Lord, we cannot do it without you, and we cannot do it without our reliance on the gospel. Help us to treasure it, to remember it, to relish it always so that we would live it out each day of our lives. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.